better? <laughs> do I need to do the prayer again? <laughs> Help us, Lord. <laughs> we, um, I've had a few interesting comments um, this week when people saw the title of the sermon. Um, I've had some people scratch their heads and like, what do you, what, what? So I want to start today with a definition from Merriam-Webster about what buzzkill actually means, the, the precise definition of it. It means one that has a depressing or negative effect. One that has a depressing or negative effect. And if we're, I think if we're honest and we look at the passage that Chris read a minute ago, on first blush, it's negative and has, an, has a, that kind of effect because like, at least for those of us sitting in North America in one of the richest countries in the world, hearing woe to the rich. And um, just on face first blush, it's a bit of a buzzkill. So where I'd like to go today, though, is I want to talk about um, this first aspect of what's called the, the Sermon on the Plain and uh, present some aspects of it for us to think about, leave you with some things to think about as you head into the week. And my prayer is that you won't find that sermon to be a buzzkill, but um, we're going we're gonna to work on that. I can't completely promise that, but that's what we're headed. And as we start looking at this passage um, from Luke 6, I want to start by just taking a moment to set some context for it. If you go and you back up and you look at the verses right before it, you get an idea of what's going on before we get Jesus's words today. So um, Jesus has earlier, we get from the verses right before this, he spent a whole night praying. And then two days later, he has called 12 of the disciples to become his apostles. And then it says he comes down on the mountain to this level place. That's where we get, we call it the Sermon on the Plain, which is in contrast, which I'm not going to go into in any kind of depth, with the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew. But you have the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. This is where he, where he gets to. And when he starts it, the, Luke, who's writing this, wants to be clear that we get that it's a large audience that at least is in attendance. And he starts out by saying it's, you know, people from Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon. And you get that it's a bigger crowd. It's not just Jews. It's a, it's a much bigger crowd. And the people who come, they are coming with needs and hurts and sicknesses and disease. And we read in the passage that it says they come to hear, but to be healed of their diseases. And when Jesus starts this thing and gets going, that's what he's doing first. He's actually healing people who have these various diseases. And then he begins to preach. And we get, again, the Sermon on the Plain. And the Sermon on the Plain starts with what we heard today. It starts with these beatitudes and these woes. But then it goes on to do a bunch of other things we'll hear about in, t in due time, not today. But to love your enemies and to not judge and all the different aspects of it goes on from there with lots of different famous things. But it starts with these beatitudes and these woes. And that part is not something that Jesus created from scratch here. That was a, a sort of a common literary form of the time, particularly within the Old Testament and within Judaism to do blessings and curses, these kind of beatitudes and, and these kind of woes was not uncommon. And in fact, there are people who would point out that there's a lot of parallels going on because Jesus has called these 12 apostles in the same way that God had raised up the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob. And after he had done that, if you go back and look at like Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you'll see that they get blessings and curses presented to them there. And here Jesus has called the 12 formed them this way, and now they're going to get their blessings and their curses as they go on. But what he says, the words he tells them are really 
radical, they're startling, they're perhaps to some upsetting, but they're certainly not the values of the world. The biblical commentator, William Barclay, who I like a lot, he says he's dropping these bombshells. He's taking the standards of the world and turning them upside down. And, you know, like you don't have to go far to hear somebody in the economy then or the economy today in the world who's going to say, you know, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. If, if that's not a buzzkill for you, welcome to our country. Um, now, I'm, I mean, a little bit of a joke there, but we're, we're in such a wealthy place. How can we not be rattled a little bit by hearing this? And, we ha- and I wonder this question, do we really hear it? If you've grown up in the church, have we heard it said so many times or heard that Jesus turns things upside down or whatever so much that we don't hear it? Are we willing to go back and really listen to this and hear what's going on? Because Jesus really is saying this is a reversal. He's saying, look, you live in a world where the rich are on top and the poor at the bottom, and we're talking about something where that's going to be reversed. Or you're, you're living in a place where the people who are, have their stomachs that are full, or they're full with, in terms of, he references hunger, they're full, and the people that are hungry, it's going to be switched. Or the people who have an easy life, and the people who are struggling hard, it's going to be switched. Or the people who are accepted and popular, and the people who are rejected, it's going to be reversed. Like, it's, it's massive what's going on with what he's saying about how all this stuff is going to get flipped. And, it's gonna, and so it's, it's got to be a little bit rattling at that stage. Like kingdom values are a lot different than what our world teaches. But I want to, um, so hold that, because I do believe that, that all gets changed. But I also want to come back and look a little bit harder in particular at this passage, because I think if we start to look at, with, look at this passage with a little bit more nuance, we'll see maybe Jesus is being a little bit more particular because I said earlier, his audience, the, the crowd that's gathered around him are these people from all over the place who are, who are there. But when he gets to this part, when he starts it, we get in verse 20 where he says, he looked up at his disciples and then he said, he looked up at his disciples and then he said. So I kind of think that this part of the, what he's saying, he is speaking directly to his disciples and he's letting all these people around listen in on what he's telling his closest follow, followers, these people that he's called, they're going to be these the, the apostles that we're going to see throughout the rest of the New Testament or the, New, the Gospels. And I think if we look at it that way, it changes maybe how we interpret it. Because now we might look at it and say what he's really saying is for the apostles who are going to become poor because of the work they're doing for the kingdom. Or they're going to be hungry and sent off with nothing to take with them as they go about or whatever else. Are they going to have these hard things? Are they going to go into these new cities where they're going to be rejected and have to put the dust off of their shoes and all these different things? As they do all these things, they're going to find blessing. And if you look at the four, I'm not going to go into all this, but like two of them are saying you're blessed right now for just making that decision. And two of them say you're going to be blessed in the future. And to me, that makes a lot more sense to look at it that way because I don't think Jesus is coming to us today and saying you need to voluntarily try to be hungry in order that you can be blessed, or you need to voluntarily try to be poor so that you can be blessed, or you need to voluntarily try to find ways to weep and be sad and upset because you're going to be blessed that way, or find ways, go out of your way to be rejected so that you can be, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's, it's a word of encouragement, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but it's, he's giving particular 
encouragement and advice and instruction to his followers because he knows what's ahead of them. He knows the struggles they're going to face, the rejection, the hunger, all the different things that they're going to they're go through. And he's telling them, you need to hang in there because it's, it's worth it all. And you're going to be blessed through it all. And I actually think on the fourth one of these that he gives, it, maybe it's even more clear than on the other ones. So if you look at the, the fourth one that he gives, I'm going to read it. And, you know, these are all in parallel, blessed and then the woes. So I'm going to read both of them. But he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what your ancestors did to the prophets. And then you skip down to the, to the woe that matches that. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So Jesus is making, he's telling his followers this contrast between true prophets and false prophets. And if you look at the true prophets throughout the pages of scripture, there are people who, it didn't matter what people thought. They were going to speak whatever God gave them. It didn't matter that they were going to be rejected. It didn't matter that they were going to be pushed to the margins. None of that mattered. It didn't matter. It, they were going to end up being hungry, poor, rejected. It didn't matter. They were, they were going to be true to whatever message God gave them. But in contrast to that, we get the false prophets who are the people who are going to sort of suck up to authority. They're going to say the things that people want them to say. They're going to make everybody feel good all the time because that's what they're about. And so because of that, they're going to have do well financially. They're going to have the food and the acceptance and the popularity because they're, they're playing right into it all. And the thing about it is, I, as you look at this, this is ancient. So maybe Jesus is talking about turning things upside down is really sort of the same, at least for the people who were already full on committed to doing whatever God wanted. But for the rest of us who've absorbed some of the ways and values of the world, it is a radical rethinking about how values work and what they are and how all this is going to go about. And I think for us, um, it, it's a call to really think about these things deep inside of us because they will impact us. At the end of the day, Jesus is calling his followers to be extremely focused on, the, on God's kingdom and his purposes and his call and not to be distracted or pulled away by the values of the world that we live in. And it was true then and it's true now. And certainly then and now I think wealth has to be, still be at the top of the list because part of what I think Jesus is saying today is that if you put in all your energy and your focus and you put everything in on being wealthy, you will be wealthy but that's all you're going to be. You're going to miss out on all the other stuff. And I think about how it's, it's, it's such a constant um, magnet that, and attraction for us to go into that place where we don't even realize it. And we look up one day and we realize that our whole focus in life has become about the money. John Wesley, when he was writing about this passage, talked about how wealth becomes a sweet poison that it pulls us into that place. And it's part of what I think we have to do, certainly in North America, is to always be mindful that it's this sweet poison that keeps pulling us in that direction. I was uh, impressed by uh, something I read not long back 
that was a, st- a study that was done by Harvard Business School about three years ago. In 2018, they did this study where they surveyed 4,000 millionaires in the United States. And it was interesting to see the questions that they asked. One of the questions they asked, which I'm not going to report on, but it's on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? I don't know what the answer to that one was. But on the, but on the one that stuck in my mind was when they said, what would it take? How much more money would you have to make to get to a 10? And the most common answer, 26% of the people taking the survey answered, it would take 10 times what they currently have, which was all they had on the scale. So they went as far as they could and hit, it would take 10 times for them to, be, to have that kind of happiness. And then the, the, the rest of the data was equally impressive um, once I get my hands on it here. It, people just kept going down that list. Um, 24% said five times or more. 23% said two times or more. Only 13% of the respondents said they got what they need to be happy. So this idea that it's just never enough. And he goes on, the, the chief um, researcher on this project was a guy named Michael Norton. And in an interview in Atlantic Magazine, he said the big issue wasn't how much they had, it was comparison. So the problem is they would get someplace, they'd move to the new neighborhood, and then they'd look around and say, oh, I need more than these guys have. I want to be above that. And then it keeps going and going and going. A sweet poison as John Wesley says, it'll just keep pulling and pulling and it'll take us away from everything that God wants. I think that's why Jesus says straight up, you, you cannot serve God and money. You've got to pick one and go all in. But if we go all in and if we make God that central place, that place where our loyalty is going to be, we'll find a deep joy that's beyond these things that are in front of us. So the thing that the world presents, I think it's interesting. I love, again, I said last week, I love reading the, the ancient fathers and mothers who write about different things in the, about these different passages. If you go back to the fourth century um, and you look at um, one of our great saints who writes about this, St. Ambrose, he says about this, it's not the wealth itself, it's the attitude that goes with it. If you get to that place, it's not, it's not necessarily that they, people have wealth, but it's, it's the attitude of getting lost in all of this. I'm dwelling on money because I think where most of us live but Jesus does more than that because he, he talks also in these beatitudes and in these woes about other things. He talks about popularity or about having fun or about, you know, these different things. There's all these different ways that we can get disoriented on the values of what the world is. But when we come back to listening to Jesus' words to the disciples and realizing we're his disciples and we're called into this thing too, it changes who we are and how we live and what our values are. And we'll have deep happiness, but in the midst of, of the pain and suffering, whatever goes with us. Because we do, if we live full in, we will f- face resistance in our world. We will. G.K. Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. <laughs> but I think the trick is for us to hold on to those values and to be in that place. And when we do that, when we keep our minds focused and our greatest desires on being loyal to God, his purposes and his kingdom, we'll make better decisions. 
decisions, I think, that will ultimately enhance the kingdom and build us up as God followers and find that deep happiness. And I think when I was thinking about this, I recently read a quote from Abraham Lincoln on discipline. He said, discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. And I think Jesus is saying, be clear about what you want most. So I want to leave you, as we wind this thing up and bring it in for landing, I want to leave you with some sort of explicit things to ponder this week and think about. One of which I haven't even said yet as we come in for landing, but is I think we got to step back from this thing for a second and just realize part of what Jesus is doing in this passage is encouraging. He wants to tell his followers and us today, I think, that whatever heartache we face um, as we lean into f- uh, being Christ followers, there are better days ahead. There's his own happiness now and there's also rewards in- ahead. And what we do. I mean, I, and this comes up in silly ways in Dallas. I just got to say, I talked to a person the other day who's in ministry. It's a couple, they both work. She works in ministry and she was kind of bemoaning for just a moment that she didn't have a lake house or a mountain house (laughs) because she had gone into ministry instead of doing whatever else. And all their friends, comparing all their friends had lake houses and mountain houses. And it took her a minute to come back to saying, but but God's used me to bless all these people and do all these great things. And that's been deeply satisfying. I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. It's God wants to say it's an an encouragement, lean into the things that that matter that ultimately satisfy. And also know along with that, not only is there's a piece in that now, but there's a piece of that in the future. And I think along with that, there's a call for us to think about where our focus is and where our values are. And to be okay with saying those are not the focus and the values of the world. They're different. And part of the, again, the pondering question for the week is, if we are going to pursue happiness, which I kind of think we all do, that's, we can talk other things. The question is, are you going to pursue happiness on the world's terms or on Christ's terms? Things to ponder in the week. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and you want the best for us. And you call us on a journey. And Lord, we're, we live in the midst of a, a place where we get pulled in all kinds of directions, some good, some bad. We pray that you would help us to hear your voice and your call and to go into the deep places of life that matter, to bless others and to experience your blessings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.